Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one of my favorite times to have the Lord's Supper with the Lord's people. We sang a song just a minute ago, and I love the song. If you'd permit me just to correct a little of the theology of the song, I think it fits with tonight. The, the lyrics are great, and on the surface it sounds good, but it says, Even though my world may fall, I will never let you go. Well, there are times we have let the Lord go. And what we rejoice in tonight and what we celebrate with the Lord's Supper is that He'll never let us go. We fumble, we fall, we blow it. And I'd love to be able to sing truly, honestly from my heart, Lord, I'll never let you go, but I know myself. Moreover, the Lord knows me. So I'm not pulling anything over on Him. And the Lord, were He here and could sing to you tonight, He would be saying, I'll never let you go. Though your world fall apart, I'll never let you go. And we're going to read a little bit of that that tonight in the book of Hosea, chapter 11. We'll be reading some verses out of the book of Hosea before we take the Lord's Supper. If I were to title tonight's message, this is the title that I would choose. Runaway, Rebellious, and Yet Restored. Runaway, Rebellious, and Yet Restored. That pretty much sums up the last four chapters of the book of Hosea. In fact, though it's not easy to outline this book, I've discovered... I would take chapter 11 and and see that as a snapshot of a runaway child, a young child growing but wanting to get away from mom and dad and a child running away. I would look then at chapter 12 and 13 as the child growing up a little bit and now a rebellious teenager. And finally in chapter 14, I see the message there as a restored adult. Israel coming to maturity, coming back to his or her God. So, runaway, rebellious, and yet restored. Now, something that I've noticed about this book. The first three chapters follow a storyline. After that, it's gone. It's pretty easy to look at the first three chapters and look at the love of a husband toward his wife who wants nothing to do with him but goes out on the streets again as a prostitute and the love of that husband to woo his wife back even though his heart is broken. And you follow a storyline because the first three chapters are autobiographical and pedagogical. They're autobiographical in that the prophet is telling you his story. But he's also using his life as a platform to show you the love of God. Now, after chapter 
3, you get into chapter 4. It's very difficult waters, quite honestly, I've discovered. The book of Hosea is sort of like a whole bunch of little oracles, messages that are given that are all clustered around a theme, but it's very difficult at times to discover that theme. So, I can say this definitively in looking at this wonderful book. The first ten chapters have a focus. Judgment. Consequences of sin. Consequences of running from God. Now, that's the emphasis. And peppered into that message is strands, are strands of the love of God. The bulk of it is judgment, consequence of sin. But there's just little douses, spices of, ah, but God loves you. Now, in chapter 11, there is a definite change. The focus in the last four chapters is the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. Peppered into that message are little strands of consequence and judgment. It's just the reverse. Now, we're not going to read every verse tonight, but we are going to cover the rest of the book in the little time that we have. And I'm going to show you some things thematically. We're going to just take and and sum up certain sections of it and bring it all together with that message. Run away, rebellious, and yet restored. Something else about this book, you probably already discovered it. It's written in poetic fashion. Hebrew poetry called parallelism. So the words don't rhyme, but the thoughts either rhyme or contrast. So sometimes when you have books like Hosea, prophetic utterances like this, oracles that are given, sometimes it's best to just sit and enjoy the poetry. Let it just seep into your soul. So we're going to look at these chapters tonight. And you'll discover something right off the bat in chapter 11. And that is the relationship of a father to a child, a runaway child. Now, you'll remember back in chapter 3, it was a husband's love toward his runaway wife. Now it's a father's love toward his errant or runaway child. I love being a father. I would have loved to have been a father several times over. I enjoyed and presently enjoy the relationship that I have with my son. It's one of the most fulfilling ever. And I remember as soon as Nathan was born, I thought, wow, this is cool. This is great. I didn't know what I was in for. (laughs) I didn't know just how good it would be. I had no idea that age two wasn't the terrible twos, but the terrific twos. And then I thought, well, it's it's been so good so far. I wonder what it's going to be like at age four or five. And it got better. And I thought, oh, he's going to be a teenager soon. That's going to surely be horrible. And it got even better, more enriching. And as time goes on, it is such a wonderful relationship. Did you know that prior to Jesus Christ, there is no record in Jewish history, any solid record of the Jews referring to God personally as their father. Nowhere. 
Now, sometimes God is called the father of Israel, the father of the Jews, but even that is very seldom in the Old Testament. But never of my father. Now, Jesus came and he changed it all. He suddenly bought, brought this relational beauty, this, this fabric of father and child. So many times Jesus referred to his father personally. And it must have made an impact on those disciples. Being brought up Jewish and now all of a sudden hearing Jesus talk about my father. And then at one point after his resurrection, he gave them the authority to do the same thing, have the same relationship. In John chapter 20, he said, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. In other words, not only was God, God, he was Jesus' personal father. Not only was he Jesus' personal father, he was Peter's personal father and James and John, etc. The question it's good to evaluate right now. What is your relationship with God like? Do you enjoy the intimacy of Father God, Abba, Father, Daddy? It's intimate, it's close. Or is there a distance? Is it just motion rather than emotion? You know, sometimes we evangelicals are a little too afraid of emotion. Don't do that. It's emotional. What, what, if, I, what if I had that philosophy with my marriage? Well, honey, I'd like to bend over and kiss you, but it's a little emotional, don't you think? <laughs> I get an earful. A relationship with your heavenly father ought to have an emotion to it. And you'll hear a lot of it in these verses tonight. We're going to skip through several verses and look at this first runaway child. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And so they called them. So they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and I fed them. I have discovered, and perhaps you have too, that God is so gentle. The way he leads me is so tender. Gentle cords. He says, I, I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. Not I drove them, not I dragged them, not I pushed them, or I had to pull them. I drew them. And I've just discovered in my own relationship with God that He is so gentle when He moves, when He directs, when He guides. The Holy Spirit is such a gentleman. So God, like a father, called Israel, drew Israel, trained them how to walk. And any human parent can understand this. When your child learned how to walk, you were patient. When your son or daughter made a first few steps and then that son or daughter fell on the floor, did you go, you idiot? I can't believe you didn't succeed. You're my child. I demand perfection. Get up. No, you, you were gentle. You, you 
scooped that child up and you stood him upright. You said, come on, try it again. You did so well. That's the tenderness of the father, God, toward his child. Bands of love. Down in verse 7. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. The theme, the love of God, peppered with, yeah, but you got a history of being a rebel, of being a runaway child. You're bent on backsliding, going the other direction. So here's God. Here's the picture. God is gentle, patient, continually wooing, continually calling. But as the child begins to grow, the child goes, I really don't want your control in my life anymore. I want my independence. That's the root of all sin, by the way, being independent from God. Can you imagine running away from God? That's got to be, that is got to be the dumbest posture anybody, I'm going to run away from God. Okay, where are you going to go? What's interesting to me is that even a prophet named Jonah thought he could run away from God. That to me is bizarre. He should have known better. One day he decided, I know God wants me to go preach to Nineveh. I'm going to run away from God. I'm going in the opposite direction. Jonah, what are you thinking? Where are you going to go away from God? Now, I think I've told you, but I had a a dog once that I should have named Jonah. Because he was an English Springer Spaniel, beautiful animal, but I'm not going to say dumb. I think he knew, I think he was intentional. But whenever I would call him, Toby, come, he would look at me, eye me, turn around and run the opposite direction. I discovered how dangerous he was when I did this to him in my front yard one day when a car was coming down the street. The car was coming, and I didn't think. I I should have thought, I should have said, go. But I said, come. And so he looked at me, and he turned, and he ran into the car. You've heard of cars running into dogs. This dog runs into cars. Now, there was a time when I thought I was going to run away from my parents. I was so mad at them. They called me. They were patient with me. And I packed up my stuff, and I decided I'm running away from home. How many here have ever done that when they were kids? And I went. I went a whole, I think, two blocks. (laughs) Till it finally dawned on me, where am I going to go? I haven't thought this through. I've got my whole life ahead of me at age four. (laughs) They're bent on backsliding, the Lord said. But look at verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I set you like Zeboim? These are the twin cities. They're twin sister cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were all destroyed in God's judgment. My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred, God says. Some people regard verse 8 as the greatest verse in the entire book of Hosea. I think you'll have to decide. It's subjective. You might have one favorite verse over another. 
But here it shows the emotion of God. God is agitated in his heart as he says, how can I give you up? I don't care what your child ever does. As a parent, you love them. You love them. They're family. How can you give them up? Here's the emotion of God. Now, can I throw out a theological term just for fun? Try it on your friends tomorrow. You'll have a blast. Anthropopathism. Isn't that fun? I'll tell you what it means, and I throw it out here because the Bible is filled with words that describe God in human emotional terms. Pathos. Anthropopathism. Describing God with the emotions of a human. So here's God in a way that we can understand saying, you know, my heart is agitated. I can't let you go. Hence the song that we sang. It's more appropriate if God were to sing, when your world falls, I will never let you go. How can I let you go, Ephraim? How can I hand you over? I love this verse because on the news last night and this morning, the president of Iran was saying that he's close to fulfilling his promise to acquire complete nuclear capabilities. And he has made some very interesting announcements that he plans to obliterate Israel from off the face of the map and then go after the United States of America. That's quite a threat. It's unfortunate that some people in the United States just think he's blowing smoke. I believe he's going to try. But I love this because I understand that though there are only 6 million Jews, interesting number, that's how many were killed during World War II in the Holocaust, 6 million that live in Israel. Now get this, 6 million that live in Israel, and they're surrounded by 300 million people who would love to push them off into the Mediterranean Sea. God says, I'm not going to let you go. I've got a plan for you. And it ain't over yet. So God's firm hand of promise with that nation. Now look down at verse 12. We move to the second phase. That is the rebellious teen phase. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation. Also they make a covenant with the Assyrians. And oil is carried to Egypt. To feed on the wind means to pursue empty goals, vain pursuits, feeding on the wind. You've got to get the imagery here. In Israel, there's different times of the year where they have winds. We, we know what that's like. But over there, it's a little different. There's an east wind, and then there's a south wind. The east wind, they call the Sirako. The south wind, they call the Humsing. And I remember living in the land when you'd have one of these whom sings come through and it's this hot, blighting, blistering, withering wind that brings hordes of insects and just brings your energy level down and the sky is brownish gray and it's hot and it's just like a surreal world. And that kills all of the vegetation after a few days unless you tend to it. So to feed under those circumstances is, is vain. You're feeding after the wind. And what it means is explained in the verse that we also read. Israel was thinking, okay, I'm going to make a pact 
an alliance with this great big superpower called Assyria. I need, I need their protection. Not knowing that it was Assyria that was going to destroy them in 722 B.C. Now as time went on and they were paying money to Assyria for protection. And they started seeing the handwriting on the wall that Assyria was trying to take over the world. Israel then turned to Egypt down south. Another superpower started paying them off. Saying maybe you'll protect me from the big bully Assyria. Can you see the predicament Israel was in? There, were, there was this balance of power. There were two superpowers, Egypt and Assyria at the time. And Israel was right in the middle in a very precarious spot. And so what God is saying, you know what? It's vain, it's empty for you to trust Assyria or Egypt. You ought to just trust me. I'll never let you go. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. Just trust me. I appreciate that the nation of Israel has an alliance with the United States of America. I stand with Israel. But, now I'm going to risk something here in saying this. I think we may make a little too much out of, we've got to stand for Israel. I believe we should. I hope that's national policy. I know what happens to nations who turn on Israel. However, Israel could be guilty of the same sin back then in trusting Assyria. Oh, we'll trust Assyria, they'll help us. They could be guilty of the same thing today. Oh, we'll just trust the United States. Don't trust us. Listen, we're blowing it. We're the nation that once believed in God we trust. We, we don't believe that anymore. I hope that Israel comes to the point where they don't trust America or England or anybody else but God himself. And God says eventually he'll bring them to that point. That's the alliance they need. The Lord also brings the charge against Judah. That's the neighbor down south. And will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to his deeds. He will recompense him. Now look at verse 3. He's going to get a little history lesson here. He took his brother by the heel in the womb. And in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. And he found him in Bethel. And there he spoke to us. This is the Lord, God of hosts. The Lord is his memorial. Hosea, God through Hosea, is giving a brief history lesson. Let me sum it up in kernel form, and then I'll back up, and then we'll come back to it. He's saying, look, I'm God. I'm the Father. I've watched you grow up. And I know that you have had a history of deceit and rebellion since you started. And he goes all the way back to the womb of Rebecca. You know, it's interesting. Scientists will actually say now that a personality is formed in the womb. Almost like the physical DNA of a person. There are personality differences between kids. And and I know you've noticed this. Because I've seen some of your kids. And I've noticed it too. You'll have one child. The child is so docile and sweet and happy. And then you'll have the second child. And instantly, they're just born. They act so different. Not compliant, but defiant. They got that little thing in their eye. It's like, uh uh-uh, this is my gig. Where'd they learn that? It's, it's, 
was formed long before they, they came out of the womb. Okay, Rebecca. One day, Rebecca was experiencing some pain. And she was pregnant. She was having some unusual pains, and she went into prayer, and she said, I'm having a lot of pain. And the Lord told her the reason why. He said, two nations are in your womb. That would give pain to anybody, don't you think? (laughs) Two nations. Two nations are in your womb. God says, the older will serve the younger. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Well, you know the story. The first one that came out, came out all red and hairy, and so Isaac called him Harry. (laughs) Called him Red Harry One. That's what Esau means. The second one came out, Jacob grabbing the heel of his brother. And so he thought, look at that, he's, he's tripping up his brother. I'll call him Yaakov, heel catcher. So Harry and heel catcher were born. And right from birth, with that hand grabbing the heel, that was a portend of what his life was to be like. He'd grow up a deceitful kid. He'd grow up a conniver. He he stole his brother's blessing. He dressed up so that his father thought that he was his brother. And he he threw deceit. So God is saying, look, I know what you're made from. I was there when you were born. And all the way back to the womb where Jacob was born. It's part of the DNA. And he found him at Bethel. And there he spoke to us. Now go down to verse 9. But I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feasts. I have a question as you read that verse. Read it again just so you you get it right in the front of your view. I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feasts. Is that verse a threat or is it a promise? Is it a threat of captivity or is it a promise of restoration? Let me give you what my answer is. I may or may not be right. It's both. It's the first one in the short run. It's the second one in the long run. In the, in the short run... They're going to be taken captive. They're going to have to leave their homes. Their homes will be destroyed, and they'll be taken captive to Assyria, brought under slavery, brought under bondage. They'll not have all of the fineries of life, all of the comforts of home. They'll be living in tents. It's part of the judgment. But ultimately, it's a promise. In bringing them back into the land they'll again celebrate a feast where they lived in tents for a week. Because I want you to notice the second part of that verse. I'll make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. Every year, Israel celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. And for a whole week, they'd live in booths. Sometimes they put branches up. Sometimes they put cloth up. It was just a makeshift shelter. It was a tent, if you will. And they would live outdoors for a week. And what it was is for a whole week they would be remembering what their forefathers used to live like when they had to live in in, uh, uh, Egypt and were taken through Egypt. And God just provided for them. They were living out in the great wide open. God provided everything they needed. 
So God says, you'll be punished. 722 BC is coming. Sargon, Shalmaneser, they are coming. You will be destroyed as a nation. You will be taken captive, living in tents. But you'll be brought back into the land and you'll celebrate in the land this Feast of Tabernacles. I also see this verse as a promise of future restoration in the millennium. Let me tell you why. And you might want to just jot down in the margin of your Bible, Zechariah chapter 14. Because there's a fascinating promise. It says that after all the nations of the world gather against Israel to destroy her, that after God judges them via the second coming of Christ, that the, the people of the nations that are left, that weren't destroyed, those who are righteous, every year, once a year, will go up to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. So one day, one day, mark the Scripture's words, you will be going to Israel. You go, oh good, I've always wanted to go. You'll go, and you'll go every year. And you'll be celebrating, in a commemorative sense, the Feast of Tabernacles. And and I'll be there too. I'll be in the crowd. And I'll go, told you. Here we are, celebrating it as a part of the future restoration during the millennium. Now in chapter 13, they're still rebellious teenagers. They've, They've grown beyond the child stage. And there's more verses that speak to that. You know... It was Mark Twain who said something interesting about raising children. Some of you have heard it because when I say that, you've already keyed up on it. Mark Twain said, everything goes along really well until they get to age 13. That's the time, said Mark Twain, that you stick them in a barrel, you hammer the lid down nice and tight, and you feed them through a knot hole. (laughs) Then when they turn 16... You plug up the knot hole. (laughs) Well, that's Mark Twain. If you know his writings, you know that's typical. Now, I've discovered the opposite, as I mentioned, with my son. And let me tell you something else. Today at, at around noon, I went to Sandia High School. And there's a Bible club that meets there. And I was invited to speak. And there were, I don't know, between 60, 70 kids in a hallway. They were all gathered together on the floor eating Kentucky Fried Chicken, Bibles Open, godly young gals and guys. And I'm thinking, that's the future. Here's godly teens, not rebel teens like we're reading here that have come of age that don't want anything to do with God. But I looked at those, I want to say kids, these young people. And I just thought, there's such, such hope. For the work of God in the future. And I looked at them and listened to them and thought, I'm not worried. I'm not worried. Well, I'm worried here with Israel. Ephraim spoke trembling. He exalted himself in Israel. When he offended Baal, he died. So, so now the nation has gone beyond the child stage. They're growing up a little bit. And Ephraim, that major tribe, is gaining some respect. Getting to be known. Now, you will remember when I jog your memory that Joseph had two sons in Egypt. One was named Ephraim, one was named Manasseh. Now, the firstborn was Manasseh. So when Joseph brought his two boys 
to his ailing, aging father Jacob to bless him. He made sure that he put Manasseh in his own left hand and Ephraim in his right hand so that Joseph facing him would be able to lay easily his right hand on the firstborn, Manasseh, and bless him, giving him the blessing of the firstborn. But you know the story. He, was, he, he, did, he couldn't see very well, but by the Spirit, instead of doing this to the kids, he went like this. Crossed his hands and put his right hand on Ephraim, who was the youngest. And Joseph said, Dad, you got it wrong. You're, look, I know you're an old guy. You're like dyslexic here. You got the wrong kids. And he basically said, leave my hands alone, buddy boy. I know exactly what I'm doing. And again, just like with you and your brother, the older will serve the younger. The younger will be more prominent, will be stronger. And that is Ephraim. Gaining notoriety. Gaining prestige, but in that, becoming a little rebellious and a little bit cocky. So now in verse 2, Now they sin more and more. They have made for themselves molded images, idols of silver, according to their skill. All of it the work of craftsmen. They say of them, Let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. That's an ancient symbol of worship, to bend down and actually kiss the idol that was made. I've been to India and I've watched people bow down and kiss statues. I've been in Jerusalem and I've watched people bend down and kiss statues and kiss the floor of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I've discovered something about people universally. We have a tendency to reject what we cannot see as being unreal. We have to see it. We gravitate toward visibility. That's why people create images, statues. I want to look at something, and I'll identify invisible God with a visible representation. But you remember God said, don't make any images, don't make any statues. Because there's no way you could ever represent totally who I am. So don't try. We walk by faith and not by sight. Israel, as they went away from God as as a runaway child and now a rebellious teenager, they wanted to be like other nations, and they wanted to be able to see something. They wanted a visibility. That was part of the idolatry. So now I'm going to skip all the way down to verse 12. The iniquity, and it's, it's described in a poetic fashion all the way down, expanded on, but the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The sorrows of a woman in childbirth shall come upon him. He is an unwise son. You see, he's not a child anymore. He, he's grown. He's past that formative age. For he should not stay long where children are born. Now we finish off with chapter 14, which is just pure love, pure restoration. From a runaway child to a rebellious teen to now a restored adult. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Let's say you're driving down the road. Suddenly you notice a light on your dashboard has lit up and it's flashing red. 
And you notice it. You go, hmm. You keep driving. A while later, another light on the dashboard, this time yellow, starts flashing. You look at it. Huh. Soon, several lights on your dashboard, the baby's lit up. It's Christmas time. There's a couple things you could do. If you were wise, you'd pull that car over, find the nearest mechanic gas station, and point it out to them and fix the problem. These are indicators that you have a problem. But there is something else you could do. You could carry in your glove box a little ball-peen hammer. It'll work. When a light goes off, you smash it. You fix the problem. There's no light anymore. There's nothing bothering you. You just kind of put them all out. Now, no, no one will know the difference. It'll all be exactly the same for a while. For a while. But eventually, the unwise decisions that you have made in just masking the problem will become very apparent. And so it is with our lives. In our consciences, God has programmed, if we're walking with the Lord, indicators. Ooh, that's wrong. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. That's not the right response. Now, you can deal with it a number of different ways. Push it out of your mind. Forget about it. Or you can stop and deal with it. How do you deal with it? You confess it. You return to the Lord, and He said, Bring words with you. Don't just come to the Lord and go... Talk to him. Confess. It says in 1 John, if we confess our sin, God's faithful and just to forgive. But if we say we have no sin, there's the deception. So bring words with you. Confess freely. Lord, forgive me. I've sinned. I've erred. Restore me. And you'll find the loving, restorative hand of God that would take any rebellion and cleanse it. So bring words with you. Say to him, take away our iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices, not animal sacrifices, sacrifices of our lips. That is confession. Do you know what confession means? It simply means to agree with. It means that you will say the same thing about your sin as God says about your sin. And you've probably noticed in Hosea, haven't you, that Hosea is very free with his language. He uses words like backsliding, iniquity, iniquities, sin, sins. These are all very unpleasant terms that are all politically incorrect today. But he uses them. And here's why. If you don't call it what it is and deal with what it is, there's no forgiveness. I I love the story of Frederick the Great. Prussian king touring a Berlin prison. And he started walking down a corridor and all of the inmates fell to their knees and all said, I'm innocent. I shouldn't be here. I was framed. Everyone claimed his own innocence. He came to one prisoner at the end of the hallway. He looked at him because he hadn't said anything. And he said, I suppose you're innocent too. Prisoner shook his head and go, nope, I'm guilty. I'm guilty and I deserve all of the punishment that will be meted out to me. 
Frederick the Great, the great Persian king, smiled and he said, Quick, immediately release this rascal before he corrupts all these fine people. (laughs) Classic. Classic. He confessed, therefore he, he was free. He was let loose. Take words with you. Verse 4, look at it. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. You know what that means? To love somebody freely is to love somebody with no strings attached. It means that my love for the person I'm loving is not based upon their character. It's based upon who I am. I choose to love. I choose to forgive. Well, they don't deserve it. It's not based on them. It's based on me. God's love is so unique, it is based solely upon His perfect character. That's why God can love us when we're the worst. I'll love you freely. Freely. No strings attached. Not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, but because God is, by His very nature, love. A man saw a woman trying to walk through a door, and he opened the door for this gal, and she was, she was a modern woman. And she said, you don't have to open the door for me just because I'm a woman. He said, madam, I'm not opening that door for that. I'm opening the door for you because I'm a gentleman. I will love you freely. I will love you because that is my nature. Not because you deserve it. I'll heal you. I'll forgive you. Return. Say what it is. Be honest. And I'll love you freely. For my anger is turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel, and he shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. I found that fascinating. You know, a lily, a flower, has no utilitarian purpose at all. But it's fragrant. It just smells good. And God says, the work that I'm going to do in you and my love for you, I look at you and it's like a fragrance. Before the service tonight, I was up in my office. I thought of this verse, actually, because I heard this droning of voices. And I listened, and it was the men of the communion board who had gathered together in a circle for prayer. I thought, oh, that's like one of the best noises ever. So I went down and joined them, and now I could hear their articulations. But when I was in my office and I just heard the drone of those prayers... I thought, that's such a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. I go, I love it. I love it. His beauty shall be like an olive tree, his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like the vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, and do you remember what the word means, Ephraim? Fruitful, fruitful. So listen to this. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do anymore with idols? I have heard and observed him. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found in me. You have been so unfruitful as a nation. I'm going to so heal, so restore you, make you smell so good. Your fruit will be found in me. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are, what? Right. You can rest in that, friend. 
you can rest in that. When you see inequity, when you hear things that are said or done that are unfair and wrong, God will settle the score. And he'll do everything right. And in the end, in the book of Revelation, I take this verse and plug it into that verse. Whereas God judges the earth, we the saints say, Righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. And Israel, when God judges and finally restores from runaway child to rebellious teen to now restored adult, will say, it was all good. It was all right. You were so wise. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall stumble in them. So, this book and this night, a very weighty message, very hard words that God has said, mingled with a heart of love, a broken-hearted prophet, that reflected a broken-hearted God who was also tender-hearted. Weighty words indeed, but the end result, the end game, is that if and when his people truly repent and truly confess, they will truly be restored. Remember what Jesus said? Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. You want comfort? You something chewing you inside, something bothering you inside, and you're just... Bring words with you. Come to the Lord. Confess. And as you do, and as it's real, and as you mourn over your sin, as Jesus said, there's such lifting and such comfort. Paul wrote a harsh letter to the Corinthian church. A harsh letter. First Corinthians. Boy, he, he indicted them, didn't he? He wrote a second letter. And he mentioned his first letter. He said, you know what? I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry by my letter, though you truly were. But I rejoice that your sorrow led you to repentance. Those weighty words were worth it because of what it led you in the end. So we've read the story of a pageant of a prophet who through his life, his broken marriage, broken home, lived out what God was feeling toward his people. God loves to restore. I had two friends who were ending their marriage with a very painful divorce. This woman was scorned by her husband. This woman was a Christian. Her husband was an unbeliever. And her husband, as an unbeliever, acted like an unbeliever. He decided that he would break his marriage vows, found some young girl, and had an affair with her. Moved out, shacked up with his young gal. Again, he's an unbeliever. He's acting like an unbeliever. She's a believer. He says, I don't want the marriage anymore, moves into that house, doesn't file for divorce. And now this Christian woman, I worked with her every day, her name was Kathy. She said, what should I do? 
said, well, Kathy, you know what the Bible says. You know what you could do. This is an unbeliever who has left a believer and has committed adultery. You would have every scriptural right to divorce your husband. I know, she said, I know that. And my friends are telling me I should get a divorce, but I don't feel like I should. I love him. And I believe God's going to restore our relationship. Now, being the man of unfaith that I was at the time, having little faith, I said, well, you know, Kathy, we often at times like this dream big. And when we're hurt, we try to deny the reality. And, you know, because I thought there's no way. Weeks turned into months and months and months where her husband was living with this gal. Now this gal is pregnant. Now all of her friends are saying, dump him. He's left the marriage. He's an unbeliever. Dump him. She says, no, I believe God's going to restore our relationship. So I, I quit. I, I, I thought, okay, great. Maybe God put this hope within her. I, I'm not going to dissuade her from that. So I just was quiet. Her husband called one day and said, this girl that I'm with is pregnant. Kathy said, honey, still called him honey, honey, I'm still willing to forgive you. In fact, if you want to come back home, and if that, she doesn't want that child, I'd be happy to raise that child in our home with you. A year after that invitation, I got a phone call. Kathy was so happy on the other line. She said, you won't believe it. Well, she was right. She believed it. I didn't. She said, you won't believe it. (laughs) What, Kathy? Vincent has given his life to Jesus Christ. He's asked my forgiveness. He's come in tears. He's broken off that relationship. I believe he's truly repentant. And he's asked that we have another wedding. Now, let me tell you about the other wedding. She didn't divorce her husband. But in the process of his sin and his leaving her and his going with his girl and getting her pregnant, he filed for divorce and they were divorced. After they were divorced, she was still saying, well, I believe God's going to restore our relationship. And he did. And I had the privilege of taking this couple broken by sin like Hosea and Gomer and hear this newly repentant man say, until death do us part. And they're still going strong today. Folks, only God can do that. And that's why I say, God would sing to us tonight, when your world falls, I will never let you go. As we pray tonight, I'm going to ask the communion board to come forward and we'll pass out these elements. Heavenly Father, thank you for the moments that we've had in your word, the powerful message of this prophet Hosea who lived what he preached even at a very, very high price, the expense of a broken home, an unfaithful wife, And the pain and the heartache of someone that he loved so deeply to turn against him. And instead of becoming a friend, to be an enemy. Thank you for his life, his experience, and your words through him. Your word tonight 
through the scriptures to our hearts for this moment. You can do anything. And I pray that you'd restore broken relationships because you can do it. And that's your heart. I pray that we would love each other freely as you freely love us. I pray as we give one another the elements, there would be such a bond of healing and warmth and love among us as brothers and sisters in this living room. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we just uh, come before you, Lord, humbly, thanking you for everything you've done for us, Lord. And as we take these elements, Lord, and we look at this bread, Lord, that represents your son, Lord, that you sacrificed and his body broken for us so that we could live, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. In Jesus' name, take the bread now. Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice, the pain, and the sacrifice, Lord, of, that you have given your blood to wash us of our sins, Lord. And we are so grateful. We can never thank you enough, Lord. And, Lord, we just do this in remembrance of you and our love and devotion to you, Heavenly Father. Let us take the blood. And in an attitude of prayer, I can't help but think there are people here who need a touch from God in a physical way. There's that scripture where it says the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And as we take these elements which symbolize the sacrifice Jesus made for us on the cross, we also realize that there is nothing impossible for him. And the same Jesus who healed people 2,000 years ago can walk among us tonight and miraculously, supernaturally touch and heal. And so, Father, we come before you and we ask that, that your presence would be here to heal our brothers and sisters, your children, those restored ones who are yours by covenant. And so we can come boldly and freely and we can ask for your touch. And if you're asking the Lord for a physical touch tonight, do you just slip your hand up so that others around can see and lay their hands on you? You're just making that admission. I need it. And then those around, if you just lay your hand on the shoulder of that brother or sister, pray that God would touch. Lord, do miracles, do wonders, do signs. Our faith, Lord, is so imperfect and so feeble. But, Lord, even the faith is a gift. And so with our faith together, we trust you. We know you can do anything. And we pray, Lord, that you would physically restore and heal in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.